2 Timothy, we're going to take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. Uh, and as I said, by way of introduction when I was uh, doing the reading, that this first chapter is very much an encouragement to Timothy to stick his neck out, basically, for the gospel. Uh, to take risks. And on what basis should he take risks? Why should he? What motivation is there? And then, as you come into chapter 2, uh, Paul really beats the drum and says, Don't just, it's not just a one-off event. You keep on sticking your neck out for the gospel and taking risks. Because there are high stakes and high rewards. It's interesting that that's what this letter is about. Because this is Paul's last letter in his life. He's sitting in a prison, a miserable hole in, in Rome. And he's writing to Timothy. Basically, this is the last letter that I'm writing... So it's important. I'm not going to waste any words here. The topics that I'm going to concentrate on are the ones I want to leave you with. This is what I'm passing on. It's a kind of relay. And, and if, if every church is one generation away from disappearing, then it's important to understand what this baton is that we're to pass on to the next generation. Now we know uh, from a little bit later on in the letter, chapter 4, he's had his first hearing... He's alone, there in prison, and because he was a Roman citizen, he could expect um, execution to be swift and painless rather than slow and brutal. But nonetheless, it was, he was going to be executed, probably beheaded. And everyone's deserted him. He's on his own. So can you imagine the letter that he might have written? Thinking of the life that he's had, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the stonings even, left for dead. What letter might he have written at the end of his life? Dear Tim, don't do what I have done. Settle down, keep your head down, stay out of trouble. I know you're a quiet man, and if I'd been more like you, I probably wouldn't be facing execution in this miserable place. Peace be with you, Paul. It lacks something, I think, as an apostolic uh, encouragement. Paul actually does the complete opposite. And the clue is right there in verse 1. What does he say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. See, he knows he's on a mission from God. So he's compelled to act. Whatever it is he has to do, it's a mission from God. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. There he is, he's facing death, and he does it in the light of a saviour who grants eternal life. He's there facing execution, and he says, well, I'm here by the will of God, according to the promise of life. Execution and the promise of life. He's going to encourage Timothy, basically, to do the same. To put his life on the line, if that's what it takes. And by implication, he's encouraging you and me to do the same. But first you have to ask, is Timothy actually cut out for the challenge? What kind of fella is he? You know, is he a kind of a spineless nobody or, or is he you know, a big heavyweight for God? What, what, what kind of man is he? Well, so Paul basically has to tell Timothy what kind of man he is, just in case there's any doubt. And what he could do is draw on the years that they've been together, the shipwrecks that they've, they've uh, suffered, the, the miles that they've 
work together. The remember that time in Thessalonica where we got run out by an angry mob of Jews? Oh, happy days. He could t kind of draw on those themes and say, you know, you're a strong man. We've done all that stuff together. You're okay. What does he do in verse 5? He actually remembers Timothy's faith. That's where his strength is. He, speak, he does speak of tears and joy in verse 4. So there's always the, the close. But that isn't what is important, the important factor for if Timothy is to go and stick his neck out for God. It's his faith and the quality and strength of his faith. He gives thanks, verse 3, continually for Timothy's faith. So on the basis of that, Paul charges him, verse 6, to fan into flame the gift of God. Now we do know from 1 Timothy that Timothy's a little bit, he's a young man, relatively speaking, and he's a bit sickly. You know, remember Paul says, take a little wine with your water for your stomach. You know, he's not a, not a particularly physically um, well man. So is he really the, made of the right stuff? If Paul's looking for somebody to sort of pass things on to, if, the, if he's here in prison and he's choosing to write to Timothy of all people, is this really a strong enough man to, to kind of pass on the work to? Well, so far as Paul's concerned, yes. But not because of anything that Tim himself has got. No, he says, you've been given a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline, verse 7. A spirit of love, that power of love and self-discipline. Are we reminded of, of Christ himself? Was Jesus a timid man as he walked around? No, he was strong, brave, morally upright. He said what was right. He, he told the truth. He got in trouble for it. It takes moral fiber to do that. And as we think of ourselves in the context of Wanting to, to tell others about God, to, to take the gospel out. What are we made of? Do we have a kind of a different sort of spirit? We have the Holy Spirit, but not in the way Timothy had the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God, but not in the way that Paul had the power of God. No, that's not true at all. We all have that same power in us. We have that same spirit in us. So it's not about our individual strength or character or, or worth. It's about the power of God at work in us. And you think, okay, well, that's fair enough. It, I wonder what you think an evangelist is. Um, somebody who sort of sets up huge evangelistic rallies, you know, Billy Graham, uh, kind of huge works that go on. Maybe they're the kind of people who lead the door knocking or the kind of person who just gets chatting to, to the next person at a bus stop or, or in a, you know, on the train or whatever it is. And some people are just so gifted in that way. And it is a gift. It's recognized as a gift in the New Testament. And I wonder how many of us were actually saved under the ministry of an evangelist like that. Not many, actually. For most of us, and I, I, we will all know people, and there may be some here who were saved under that ministry. We praise God for that. It's wonderful. For most people, we're brought along to church, to chapel, 
Maybe it's because you want to see your girlfriend on a Sunday, you have to go to chapel, whatever it is. Or taken along to a, just a, a meeting, or invited round for lunch, where there will be some Christians, and they might chat about the, uh, the previous Sunday's service. Or just over a cup of tea, whatever it is. We just informally spend time with Christians, see that they have something different about them. And if you think of your own conversion, most Christians would recognize that as the pattern of their conversion. I began to spend time with Christians. I realized that they had something different about them. I was attracted to what they said about God. And I could, their faith in him seemed to be a rock that carried them through life. And it's those images of, of spending time with Christians, Christians spending time with non-Christians, that draws people in. And we're all that kind of evangelist. We're not all Billy Grahams. But we can all spend time with others and demonstrate how important God is to us in our lives and how we rest on him for his promises. Maybe you feel, well, you know, I'm a bit too timid for that kind of, a bit British. We don't really do that sort of thing. Well, have you got some less powerful spirit in you than Timothy had? No. Not at all. Verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. And if that marks you out, then praise God. As a challenge to those... Oh, as I think of, of starting up as a, a pastor in a church in Bromborough, I'm... I'm conscious of the responsibility of this sort of thinking on the church leadership as well. And it's for the church leadership to introduce um, opportunities for evangelism that the, other, the rest of the church can draw people to, can invite friends to. And the church has a part to play in that. The church leadership has a part to play in that. But even, uh, and, and whether that's church services or something else, there is a part to play. But for all of us, our role is to invite others along. And if I said, okay, we've got this special event on next week, who would you bring? Well, who are you praying for every day? And if there isn't anybody, you have to ask if that's right. Is there anybody that you're kind of witnessing to over a period of time and thinking, well, I think... You know, maybe in six months' time it would be right to bring them in and I'll keep on praying for them, I'll keep on praying for them, I'll keep on praying. But if there isn't anybody in that bracket, is that really right? Timothy. Maybe he's ashamed of the gospel. Maybe he's a bit embarrassed. Ashamed is, is a funny word to use, but it's the word that Paul uses here. Paul tells him not to be ashamed of Jesus. Verse 8. He also says, don't be ashamed of me. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Even though I'm in prison, which is a pretty degrading thing to, do in, in, to be in those days. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Come along, join in. Ashamed is a funny word to use. You think of Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does Paul write it that way? 
you can be so familiar with these words, we sometimes lose the weirdness of it. Let, let me put it this way. I've been happily married for 22 years. I'm not ashamed of my wife. It's a funny way. It's an odd thing to say, isn't it? The living God has saved me by the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What an odd thing to say. And God in his wisdom knows that we can sometimes be a bit embarrassed, a bit ashamed, and feel a bit awkward telling people about God. And that's the language he uses. So he says, do not be ashamed. We can dress it up a little bit. And think, well, I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I, admit I don't tell people about the Lord Jesus because I, I, I don't know how to explain things properly. I, my, my words get all tangled up. I, I, it just wouldn't come out right. So it's easier just not to say anything. No, that's not, that's not good enough. Paul gets his thoughts about God right, and then everything else falls into place. So, verse 9. Let's look at verse 9, the language that he uses. If we think right about God, then it should be inevitable that we'd want to be telling people. So, God, he says, who's done two things. He's saved us, God who has saved us, and called us to a holy life. He's done those two things for us. He's saved us and called us to a holy life. Why has he done that? Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. It's because he is wonderful that he has chosen in his own purpose and grace to save us and to call us to a holy life. By his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us before the beginning of time. Get your head around that. But has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So by his own grace, he determined he was going to save us, call us to a holy life. When did he decide that? When you were good enough? No, before the beginning of time. And then he stepped into time as by Christ's death, through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has two things, destroyed death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what the Lord Jesus has done. He's destroyed death and brought life and immortality to, to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And that is why I'm suffering as I am. If God has set his eternal purposes in place and chosen people to be saved before the beginning of time... He stepped into time by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and destroyed death and brought life and immortality to, to, to life. And then he says to Paul, you're going to be a teacher of that. Paul says, okay, I'm a very tiny part of a massive plan. And God will do what he intends to do. I'll suffer a bit for that. It's all God's work from beginning to end. Paul's about to be executed, but he looks to the Savior who brings life and immortality. Execution, pa! I'm doing what God wants me to do. And there is no death anymore. He can face the difficulties ahead because he's absolutely convinced of his rescue. Verse 12. That is why I'm suffering as I am. 
Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So back to verse 8. Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of Paul who suffers for our Lord. What does he say? Join with me in suffering for the gospel. But not on your own power, your own strength or power. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That same power that chose you before the beginning of time, that has by which Christ has destroyed death and introduced life and immortality, that same power is at work in you. And it's by that power that you go out and tell others about the Lord Jesus. Because that gospel is a story to be told. You do it by the power of God at work in you. Our Matthew, we've got three boys of course, Matthew, Adam and Daniel. Matthew's not here. Uh, he's, um, he's working actually today, I think, is it? No, he's not working, he's working yesterday. Uh, he's, he's not a Christian, he's, he's 18. Adam's 16 and Dan was 11 yesterday. You can wish him happy birthday afterwards if you like. Um, now, Matthew's a part-time waiter in a hotel. And uh, he quite often gets asked, what about this dish? Is it a bit rich? Is there any cheese on that? Is that one a bit spicy? Will I like that? I can't eat this. Is there any of this in that? And every so often, he goes to the hotel, and they put all the food, all the dishes. We've got, right, here's our autumn menu. Here's everything on the autumn menu, all cooked, all there in front of you. Have a taste of everything. And so he goes along, and he has a taste of everything on the menu. So that when he's serving in the restaurant, people, and people say, is that one a bit rich? He can say, no, that was okay, but th this has got that, and that's got that, and yeah, you'll enjoy this. No, that's a bit dry, that's whatever. He's experienced it, so he can sell it. Uh, ten years ago, I, I went to a call center. If you ever see uh, on, on the TV an advert for uh, Euro Disney, uh, call 0800 now, and it'll all sort of come up. And you phone, uh, phone through and you say, yeah, I, I really want to go to Euro Disney, um, but I don't know what hotels to stay in. They say, oh, well, there's this hotel and this hotel. That one's not too far away. This is much nearer. Da, da, da. But, and, and what are the rides? Is this ride suitable for somebody who's pregnant or somebody who's old, somebody who's young? I've got toddlers. You know. Oh, yeah, there's this, there's this, there's this. How do they know? The training for them is to take them to Euro Disney. They experience the place so that they can explain it to others. If you're to tell others about the power of God to save you, then you're to experience it yourself, aren't you? And if you're not experiencing that every day, if you're not drawing on that power of God every day, what kind of witness are you to be able then to say, well, oh, you can trust in the Lord Jesus. Do you know what? I'm not ashamed. I'm convinced he is able to guard what I've entrusted him for that day. But I am really worried about this illness of mine. The, the two things don't quite fit together, do they? In what sense are we, are we saying that we're worried about things? If we're convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted, wouldn't it be more effective to say, I'm ill, but you know what? I trust in God. That's taking our experience of God, a genuine daily experience of God, and telling others about that. Better than go to Euro Disney. Paul links effective evangelism 
with experiencing the power of God. But he says, will you join in the suffering? He invites Timothy to join in the suffering. And by implication, he's asking us to. It starts by testifying about Jesus. And if you're not sure what to do, sometimes we can... How do you, how do you tell somebody? How do you kind of move the conversation around? It feels awkward sometimes, a bit forced sometimes. People often more interested in such things than we give credit for. We feel kind of really awkward and build it all up inside. And yet when you start the conversation, it's like talking about football or golf or something that they don't have an interest or knowledge about, but can see that you do and, and will open up a conversation. It's often we get more fraught about it than, than they do. So tell someone that you go to church. Tell them that you're a Christian. Give them one reason why you're a Christian, what that means to you. And then ask them, do you want to know more? Why don't you come along? It's not that hard. They can only say no. And compared with being beheaded, it's not that hard really, is it? And if it's God's work that he's planned before the beginning of time, who knows where that conversation could lead? That's our position. That's our role. If death is destroyed and Jesus brings life and immortality, what have you got to be afraid of? Nothing. Or anything to be ashamed of. Maybe we could make the message a little bit more palatable then. If we think it's a bit tricky, verse 13 and 14, what you've heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Don't you dare deviate. With faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We have to stick to the gospel. We have to tell the truth as it is. No small print. Uh, it's not like we're all going to walk around with, you know, the end of the world is nigh placards on us. But we're not going to hold back on the truth either. We need to be faithful and clear. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And if you take anything out of the gospel, you're taking some of that power away. You, we teach the gospel. What are the marks of involvement? How do you know if you're actually taking part? Verse 15 to 18 are interesting. You can see that these things will affect what we do. Anisiphorus. Anisiphorus. Uh, may the Lord show mercy on the household of Anisiphorus because he refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. There's no Facebook, no whereabouts, no nothing to, you can't go online and, or, or phone him up, a little text message, Paul, where are you? I'm in prison waiting to be beheaded. You know, there's, there's nothing like that. Where is he? Where is he? Where's the prison? He searched hard to go and find him. And on the one hand, he could have stayed where he was and just prayed that the Lord would help. But he put one foot in front of the other and actually did some hard work. He put the graft in to go and find Paul. And Paul, Anisiphorus, for all his efforts, gets a pretty nice mention on the pages of Scripture. Talk about mentioned in dispatches. That's pretty good. 
there was a, a senior government minister in the news not so long ago and they, they were talking about how although he's a government minister and he's got loads of responsibility down there in London do you know what he's a constituency MP first he cares about the people he's got all these things that he has to take care of and he does all that really well but he puts his own constituency first there's no kind of ivory tower responsibility about uh, uh, behavior about this man and that's the way we are we don't sit in ivory towers and we don't sort of only sit in church and if our entire Christian experience is what goes on in here and outside we're, we're something else something different well we've lost something we're to take this gospel out this afternoon tomorrow the next day the next day the next day it's work there are things we have to do like Anisiphorus went and searched hard for Paul there will be things that you and I have to do that will take effort. Is your saviour worth that effort? I think he is. So to summarise, Timothy's got the powerful Holy Spirit in him. And so do we. So do you. Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality. He holds us secure against the day of judgment. And by God's power, we, like Timothy, are to testify to others about Jesus. That same wonderful gospel that saves us, we're to take out and make known to others. And what is there to be ashamed of? If we can sit here and our hearts are warmed at the thought of what God has done for us, it's only inevitable that we should want to tell others about that. Paul's facing execution. But he's got no fears, no regrets, no worries. He's done what the Lord wanted him to do, even to death. So our challenge then, as church leaders, we need to think about what we put in place for evangelistic opportunities for people in the wider church to take advantage of. What's the plan? Is that plan communicated? Have we got a vision for what we're expecting to achieve and how. But for all of us, we need to ask, who are we praying for? Who will you pray for tomorrow, this week, every day? If you're not praying for a non-Christian in that way, why not? If that's the, the power of the gospel to save, then let's ask the Lord to save. Who are you going to tell Jesus about? Remember those four steps that I put in? Tell them you're a Christian. So tell them you go to church. Tell them you're a Christian. Tell them why you're a Christian. And ask them if they want to know more. It's not overly hard to do. But finally, if you're not a Christian, you might be wondering what on earth all this has to do with you. Easy ride. This, this being a Christian like sounds hard. There's stuff to do. There's work to do. You have to go and tell people about Jesus and stuff. But... Do you know what? That's the least of your worries. If you're not a Christian, you're in trouble. Because no one will rescue you on that day. The confidence that Paul exhibits there for that day, the day of judgment, is for Christians. It's for all Christians, not just Paul. But no non-Christian, somebody who's not a Christian, can have no confidence in any of that stuff. The reason Christians are to tell you with such urgency 
the way to be saved is because you need to be saved. And you're on the road to hell without Jesus. And if you'd like to know more, well, there are people around who'd love to tell you more. Especially after thinking about the, the glory, the wonder of God's almighty purpose of salvation for us.